0: The chance to rethink the basics of criminal justice doesn't come along very often. In 2016, though, just such an opportunity presented itself. It was a chance to rethink who should be in the Allen County Jail while awaiting trial and who could be trusted to remain free and to come back when their day in court arrived. The results have been astonishing. Millions of taxpayer dollars saved while keeping thousands of low-risk defendants free safely and successfully as they await resolution of their cases. I'm John McGauley, and on this episode of In Session, we're talking about Indiana's Criminal Rule 26 and the fundamental way it's changed how bail works in the state of Indiana. When it comes to Indiana's efforts to make bond a more effective part of the pre-trial management of defendants, my three guests today have been at the forefront of change, and I'm delighted to welcome to the program Judge David Zena of the Allen Superior Court Criminal Division, Magistrate Jason Custer of our Misdemeanor and Traffic Division, and Jeff Yoder, Executive Director of Allen Superior Court Criminal Division Services. Gentlemen, welcome to In Session. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with a a quick round of introductions. Would each of you take just a second to introduce yourselves as our highest ranking first-timer on the program, Judge Zent? The table is yours.
1: Well, thank you, sir. Uh, My name is David Zent. I'm a judge in Allen Superior Court in the Criminal Division. I was originally hired by the judges in 2015 to be a magistrate, the job that Mr. Custer now has. I was then appointed by Governor Holcomb to replace retired Judge John Serbeck in 2019, and I was elected in 2020. I handle major felonies. I split those 50-50 with Judge Frangle.
0: All right. Also on the program for the first time, Magistrate
2: Custer. Thanks, John. Uh, My name is Jason Custer. I'm a magistrate here in Allen Superior Court in the Misdemeanor and Traffic Division. I'm the senior magistrate down here. I've been here since about 2016. Before that, I was a prosecutor here in Allen County for approximately 15 years and um, I've enjoyed my job since I've gotten it.
0: All right. Anna Hardy, welcome back to Jeff Yoder, back on the program again. You were part of Episode 7 a few months ago
3: on our Life Saving Drug Court program. Remind us what you do as Director of Criminal Division Services. Thank you, John. As a Director of Criminal Division Services, or CDS, I oversee the supervising arm of Allen Superior Court. Criminal Division Services includes... The Drug Court Program, Superior Court's Veterans Court Program, Pretrial Services, and, of course, uh, the Alcohol Countermeasures Program. Uh, At any given time, we're supervising around 2,500 individuals. I've been with the county for 24 years now and have enjoyed every moment of it. And you're one of the elite few who I've managed to talk into doing this twice. I don't know if I would... Consider myself elite, but
0: yes. (laughs) So, first, a little bit of background. Back in 2016, the Indiana Supreme Court adopted a pilot project that explored the idea that low risk offenders should be released from jail without paying a bond unless they're a flight risk or a danger to others. Under Judge Zent's predecessor, Judge John Serbeck, Allen County was one of 11 pilot counties statewide that demonstrated this concept and establish the ways in which these defendants would be monitored prior to the resolution of their case. In 2020, the provisions of what is now known as Criminal Rule 26 were formally adopted by the Supreme Court. It's no longer a pilot project. This is how we do business now in Allen County. Two years later, thousands of pretrial defendants have been through the process and the results, I think we'll find out as we go today, have been remarkable. Maybe for Judge Zent, first question, what was the catalyst for this? The changes brought about by Criminal Rule 26, what made Indiana start rethinking the rationale behind cash bond?
1: Well, we started doing it as a pilot when uh, the Supreme Court asked Judge Serbeck to be one of the counties that was going to try and figure out this riddle on how do we do this process of deciding who's going to come back to court, who's not going to come back to court, and are they going to be a danger to themselves or others. But I think locally and both nationally, uh, there's several things that were involved. Jails were constantly overcrowded. It's very expensive to have people in the jail costing taxpayers money. People were disproportionately affected that were on the low end of the socioeconomic status and that if they're arrested and have to pay a bond and there's no real consideration done by the judge of the court system as far as what their bond or bail should be it doesn't take too long if you're living paycheck to paycheck that if you're in jail for three or four days you probably just lost your job and then you're behind on rent and then you might get evicted who's putting food on the table who's supporting the family and most importantly you're innocent until proven guilty and these people have just been arrested and uh, probable cause found for an arrest they are not guilty so we need to figure out how do we solve this riddle how are we how are we going to find out who can we safely release or who can we give a lower bond to that we know will come back i was thinking about today when we were getting ready to do this podcast jeff i don't know if you remember this it was before we even started the pilot and i was down here in misdemeanor traffic and it was a felony theft charge against a gentleman for literally stealing a candy bar and he was 64 years old I was a newer magistrate, wasn't really sure what all I could and couldn't do. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to make this guy pay $2,500 bail for literally stealing a candy bar. So I just showed him OR. And then at one of our first meetings that we had, I think, Jeff, you used that as the example of, a here's an instance of, we really don't need to make this guy pay a bunch of money to get out of jail. Those are a lot of the reasons that kind of swirled around. And how do we solve this problem? What can we do about
0: it? And before we go any further, it's important to point out, I think, that the new rule is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Even if somebody's not found to be a flight risk or a danger to others, they are still subject to restrictions and reporting requirements to make sure they show up for future court appearances. Magistrate Custer, maybe talk about that for a minute.
2: Well, we're really fortunate here in Allen County because of the supervising agencies that we have, both in Superior Court as well as Circuit Court. If you are released pursuant to this program, you are still subject to pretrial services if you're under Superior Court supervision. Jeff runs that program, and they do a fantastic job of ensuring that these folks report when they're supposed to, and they provide additional conditions with them. As a condition of our certification for our program, however, the judicial officers are responsible for certain special conditions such as alcohol testing and drug testing, and indicating whether or not they can use alcohol or drugs while they're under supervision. Likewise, the circuit court supervising agency is known as CAST, and the same accolades go to them. They uh, supervise their folks really well, they're on top of their defendants, and we feel very comfortable when we have to release somebody under the supervision of either one of these two agencies.
0: I think it's also worth pointing out that not everybody who's accused of a crime is eligible for a no-bond release under Criminal Rule 26. You can't stand accused of murder or, I thought this was interesting, treason. But for the most part, those accused of all felony levels can be considered. They are, however, evaluated very methodically to determine the level of risk they pose and their likelihood of coming back to court. At the heart of that task is an evidence-based risk assessment for Jeff Yoder.
3: What does that mean and what goes into determining whether somebody qualifies? Let me start by answering this, John, with the expected outcomes of bail decision-making include maximized rates, rates of court appearance and public safety. So when we're talking about these evidence-based assessments, all the research in criminal justice over the years and other disciplines, frankly, has demonstrated that decisions about individual behavior are best made using an actuarial risk assessment. These assessments calculate potential risk by using factors shown empirically to be related to the assessed risk levels. Pretrial Services utilizes the Indiana Risk Assessment System, or IRAS. The purpose of the IRAS, in this case the pretrial IRAS, there are several different types of IRASs. The pretrial tool is to predict pretrial misconduct and risk of reoffense during one's pretrial status, along with their likelihood of reappearing in court. As for the process, when determining whether someone qualifies mm-hmm. for a no-bond release, to encapsulate an, an, what could be an otherwise lengthy description. <laughs> each morning, we have staff here who review the arrest logs, the overnight arrest logs. We conduct an initial review of all arrestees whom are potentially eligible for release at the time of initial hearing, save those who are arrested for murder or treason <laughs> um, and or those who are already on probation. How many of those treason arrests do you get? <laughs> I've seen none in my tenure. Um, yeah, good. Yet. And of course, those who are already under community supervision, like <laughs> parole or probation, or already on pretrial release on an unrelated case. We will otherwise assess all bondable offenses. We do so prior to the initial hearing. I mentioned the no interview assessment, so we do that on top of the IRAs assessment. That's really, it's a thorough background criminal history Mm -hmm. type of no interview assessment, but it does give a lot of weight, I think, to the overall release decision-making process. So once we're done with that process every morning, a copy of this stuff, what we consider a pretrial services report, Mm -hmm. this goes to the court as well as defense counsel, as well as the state or the prosecutor's office. So they can conduct together a purposeful initial hearing. All parties are in court with the defendant uh, when we have those initial hearings every morning. And then at initial hearing, of course, a decision is made whether to release someone on their own recognizance or release them on the historical bond schedule. Again, this is risk-informed, generally speaking. The presumption of release would be based on if they're low-risk, they're going to get OR'd. Otherwise, if they're higher-risk or high-risk, they might not be getting out that day, but there may be a bond set. And I want to stress the fact that judicial discretion applies in all cases. I think right now we, we have a concurrence rate of around 75%, which means all things considered equal. The judiciary is 75% of the time following through with our presumptive release matrix. So someone who's there for stealing a candy bar who might be low risk isn't going to sit in jail for weeks or even months on end. Because we assessed him prior to initial hearing, he's low risk. Judge Zen or Magistrate Custer or Magistrate Baudin, maybe the release will be OR that morning.
2: And, and I think we need to amplify one thing that Jeff said in the middle of that, because you were talking about who, who qualifies for a bond review. As Jeff said, if you're under any kind of community supervision already, you're, you do not qualify for that. And that could be you're on probation, you're on parole, you have a pending case. Any of these situations make or disqualify you from being reviewed for this. So I, I want to make sure that was clear in case any of your listeners were wondering, well, what if this situation occurs?
0: And all that said, Superior Court didn't jump into implementing this philosophy with with both feet right away. Throughout the pilot program, the application of this expanded methodically to include more and more defendants, maybe for for Magistrate Custer, Judge Center, maybe even you, Jeff.
1: Oh, it was definitely baby steps. The first couple meetings, it was a very small group. We didn't yet have all the stakeholders involved. And candidly, we knew that not all the stakeholders of the justice system would really buy into this. Uh, they wouldn't want to do it. They wouldn't believe that it would work. So we started with nonviolent offenses and slowly built the data that it worked. And then as we convinced everybody that this process works, if you use the evidence-based decision-making, if you use the matrix, if you go through the questionnaires, the PRAS, the IRAS, we slowly expanded uh, on, I think there were 10 steps. And that's credit to, I believe it was Kim Churchward came up with the 10 steps and that one of our best meetings we ever had and the, literally the 10 steps of which and when, what crimes will we now involve in the pilot process until everybody's involved. But no, it was very much baby steps. We did not dive right in. It started out with nonviolent offenses, figuring that those people would be the least likely to actually commit an offense if we let them out without having to pay a bond. So we definitely were looking at the safety of the community and how do we do this slowly to one, see if it works, and two, then if it does, convince everybody else to hop on board
2: that was a great meeting because we did have everybody was involved and everybody was kind of looking at each other thinking how are we going to get this this started and finally Kim jumped up and we, we had a huge whiteboard or a blackboard in that room and we just cut it up into a grid and the idea started flowing of, of how are we going to get this started and as Judge Zent just said, we started with nonviolent low-level felony offenses because if we'd started with misdemeanor cases because of the sheer volume of, of misdemeanor cases we just didn't know what the numbers were going to be so we came up with our own matrix or grid, and each quarter... We reviewed what the numbers were, thanks to Jeff and his crew coming in with those numbers, and then we decided, are we ready to go to that next step? Are we ready to include these additional offenders? And it was flawless. I think that was one of the proudest aspects of those stakeholder meetings was how we all worked together coming up with that grid.
0: Now for the bibliography later on, and for people who really love details, Judge Zen a minute ago, you mentioned a couple of acronyms that I believe are the risk assessment tools. Tell us what IRAs, and I think you mentioned one more, what those mean.
1: I'll defer to these gentlemen as they currently see those documents a lot more often than I do.
3: Give us the footnotes. The PRAS is simply pretrial risk assessment. Mm-hmm. It's a non-interview tool. It's very similar to most non-interview tools. It's based on pretrial populations, though. The IRAS mm-hmm. stands for Indiana Risk Assessment System slash Pretrial Assessment Tool. IRAS PAT. That's what those that's acronyms what it stand is. for. And for the Pre-Draw
1: risk assessment—that's uh, the non-interview screening tool you can use, where you don't actually have to see the accused defendant. Correct.
3: Correct. We also, on top of doing, uh, you know, local criminal history search, we run a triple I or an NCIC check on everyone too. That's part of this PRAS process. Mm-hmm. So we're doing a thorough review on people to see if they're already out on bond or see if they're in Allen County and on probation somewhere else.
2: What's important about those tools from the aspect of of when you're conducting these hearings, though, each one of them are scored. There's a a scoring system that goes with each. Now, the the PRAS score, frankly, isn't that valuable to us. We look at the IRAS score because that tells us whether somebody is a low, medium, or high risk, whether to reoffend or to reappear. But those numbers then go into a release matrix we have that guides us with what the group believes whether somebody should be released or whether it should be subject to an OR release. Again, as Jeff said earlier, we still have complete discretion uh, as judicial officers irrespective of what those scoring tools are, but that's the significant of those tools when you're on the bench and you're presiding is the, you take a look at these scores, but then you have the other information that's provided with it that goes into the evidence-based decision-making that goes back to the uh, beginnings of this in 2016.
0: Now, for Judge Zant, these may not be uh, specifically tied to one another, but while we're on the topic, the question about how bond is set occasionally comes up, especially in high-profile cases. Would you take a second and explain Allen County's standard bond schedule, how it's set, how it's applied?
1: Sure. We, we do have a standard bond schedule. Uh, it got slightly modified once Rule 26 came into effect, but it had essentially been the same skeleton bond schedule for decades. And it's a standard bond by charge. And then whatever that charge is, there's a bond that's applied to it. Now, To emphasize, the judges can change that. Judicial discretion says on a case-by-case basis, they can raise it, they can lower it. Mm -hmm. It's to what they believe is necessary to to ensure the safety of the community and the person's appearance at future court hearings. And the amount of the bond is kind of correlated to what the offense is. Mm -hmm. So if it's a higher level offense, the bond is higher because if you're charged with a higher level offense and you might spend a couple decades in prison, you might be thinking of the old Butch Cassidy movie. Next time, let's go someplace like Bolivia. Let's go someplace like Bolivia. <laughs> because if you're looking at 40, 50 years in jail and you only have to pay $100 to get out of jail, well, you might not come back. That's right. So there is a little bit of a correlation. And by a little bit, I mean, there is a correlation between what is the offense and what is the standard bond. That doesn't mean you have to pay that bond. That's one of the whole points of rule 26 is if you're not a flight risk, if you're not a danger to the community, you're simply just accused of a crime, you can be released without having to pay a dime
0: but it's safe to say that the bond schedule is very methodical it's very specific doesn't matter who you are when you come to court when it comes to setting bond it's the charge you're facing that matters almost every time
1: right that's the starting point is that what are you charged with the bond that's set is who are you? And what is your past? And have you been arrested fifteen times and thirteen of those fifteen times you didn't come to court and the sheriff had to go find you? Have you had parole or probation revoked before? I mean what is what is that person's past? It starts out with what's your charge. Then the point of all of this is who are you and will you come back? Are you danger to the community?
3: To underscore what Judge Zent was saying, prior to 2016, when we started this, the judiciary didn't have anything in front of them other than, this is the charge. So what we're doing, essentially, and uh, ultimately, is to inform the court of all this ancillary information that was otherwise, and historically, not available mm-hmm. to them. So they were just left with, you're going to be released based on this amount based on this charge. Mm -hmm. So that is truly a fundamental change from how we did business in the past. They have more information in front of them to make a decision on release than they ever had in front of them. And I wanted to add that Mm -hmm. because that's really, at the end of the day, why we're doing all this.
1: That's an excellent point. Years ago, bond was bond was bond. And it was pretty much a given exactly what your bond was going to be because it was because here's your charge. You know, here's a slide rule and there's your bond because the judges didn't have this information. So unless either the prosecutor asked for an increase in bond or the defense filed a motion, had a hearing for a decrease in bond, it was pretty much set in stone what your bond was going to be. So Thankfully, we have the new information so we can make better informed decisions.
2: a lot of people also don't realize is that with these scoring tools that Jeff is now providing through his agency for judicial officers, the state also has the option in some cases where they can ask for an elevated bond. And when they do that, we let Jeff know and his folks go and develop these tools, the IRAS and the PRAS in those cases. which again, provide additional information for the judicial officer to make that determination, but that has been a real nice surprise out of this, that we have been able to use the IRAS and PRAS in a separate way, and again, that is, if the state of Indiana seeks to elevate a bond, we can provide that additional information.
0: So back to Criminal Rule 26, Magistrate Custer, you've got an especially important role in the ongoing implementation of this philosophy here in in Superior Court. You're a member of the Supreme Court's pretrial release committee that's been responsible for implementing Criminal Rule 26. With help from Jeff's team, the vast majority of bond hearings take place in the misdemeanor and traffic court where you serve. Talk a moment about your role.
2: Well, after Judge Zen abandoned me, um, a, a additional. <laughs> I'm sorry, the governor <laughs> wanted me to be a judge. Well, I, I'll take that up with the governor at some other time. Magistrate Bodan uh, was appointed to take Judge Zen's place, so I do have a partner with regard to this. The majority of the Rule Twenty Six hearings take place down in misdemeanor traffic, even if it's a felony case the way our system is set up right now, those felony folks appear down in misdemeanor traffic before formal felony charges are filed against them. Therefore, their first court appearance is with us, which makes them subject to the bond reviews. Mondays are our heaviest days. Uh, We will typically have six to 18 of these hearings every Monday. I think our high water mark is 24. I can't remember specifically, but I, I'm pretty sure it's 24. Most other days we have between one and maybe eight of these hearings. When we preside over these hearings, it is basically as we've already talked about, the judiciary gets a copy of the IRAS and PRAS that is shared with both defense counsel as well as the prosecutor. The defendant is, is given an opportunity to speak with their defense counsel away from the rest of the hearing. Once the defense counsel lets everything know they're ready we proceed with the hearing we go through with the regular findings of the hearing When it comes to the bond, we ask the state uh, what their position is with the bond. We let them make a record. We've let the defense counsel make a record. Interestingly, with Rule 26, if the defendant would like to say something, they're allowed to, and and you can't use that any further. That is strictly for Rule 26 purposes. Generally, defense counsel still shy away from that because there's just something that that doesn't feel right about letting them speak at that time. But after everything is taken into account, the, the statements of counsel, along with reading the... IRAS and the PRAS, that's when we make a termination with regard to bond. Now, if that's a felony case, then that goes down to... Either Judge Zen or Judge Gall or Judge Godfrey, typically the bond is supposed to carry over to any felony case that, that gets formally filed. Anybody can ask for a review of that, but typically that bond stays throughout their felony case. It has worked seamlessly down here. We have not had any issues, and that goes a lot to uh, Jeff's staff because we are never waiting for the IRAS or the PRAS to be done. We're just waiting for it to be scanned into the files because we are we're paperless we're waiting to, mm-hmm. to get the files in court. It has been terrific. As, as I said, I came to this job as a prosecutor, and when I started in 2016, I was skeptical about it because of, of my history, and I've been amazed at the results that we've had throughout this program. It's important to also note when I mention the fact that a defense attorney is there with the client that's being reviewed for the bond hearing. In each one of these cases, a public defender is provided free of charge. We don't know who's at that point going to be able to hire an attorney and who's not. If a private attorney does show up for that person, then fine, they can take over in that hearing. However, if there is not a private attorney there for that person, each one of these defendants gets a public defender. For the limited purpose of the bond hearing, we make sure that that's noted in the order
0: you know, for the civics students listening to this, I think it's interesting to note how much important stuff goes on at the misdemeanor and traffic division, because it's not at the courthouse. People who see these things on the news and in the newspaper assume that everything goes on at the courthouse. It's a lot of important business that happens in our other facilities.
2: We're a high volume court. We have a lot of people coming through our doors. Uh, Sometimes I wish we had a turnstile out there so we could figure out exactly how many people come through our doors every day. But yeah, we we do more than, than speeding tickets down here because of the way our system some setup
0: for another reason we had to actually go out and count how many people came through here in 2022 you had just a little over a hundred thousand people through the entrance so let's talk about the results so far i think i said in the introduction that would find out later that the results of this so far have really spoken for themselves jeff and magistrate custer i know you've got some great numbers that really demonstrate the year's worth of
3: results on the project so far we do, and they've been encouraging since we've started this process. The two main factors regarding pretrial release is it's a supervision agency. We want to do our best to ensure that the pretrial defendant returns to court when they need to. We want these folks to avoid any future criminal behavior, new arrest. That's the safety rate. We have found that those who assess as low risk are absolutely showing up to court at higher rates than higher risk individuals. Those who assess as low risk are absolutely avoiding new criminal arrests rest, new pretrial misconduct, because they're low risk as compared to the high risk population. Right now, our appearance rate, based on the data we have, is 95%. So 95% of those who assess at low risk show up to court, whereas the high risk population show up to court at a rate of about 68%. Mm -hmm. That's their appearance rate.
2: And I love the way Jeff breaks all this down, but bottom line is the folks that are being OR or that are released in this program, they're reappearing at a 91% appearance rate. The people that aren't being released, but they're subject to the bond, they're appearing at 83%. So that tells you that we're doing something right in this program. Jeff and his folks are providing us the tools that the judicial officers are identifying the right people to release on this program.
0: I was going to ask, does that speak to the quality of the assessment tools that you've been using, that you find the right people who you can depend on to come back?
2: It does speak to the assessment tools, but it all speaks to... You should brag j- now, right? Jason, this is the part where you brag that you and Magistrate <laughs> Custer and
1: Magistrate Kearns are doing an excellent job in looking at the tools and the information in front of you and deciding who can be released safely and who maybe needs to post that bond, or maybe we need to be a little bit more worried on that particular person for one reason or another.
2: Well, and I think it goes throughout our judicial system. Everybody's doing these hearings, but the bottom line is as a group, we're doing a good job for the reappearance <laughs> of people to come back to court and you're going to see in a moment that that's just the reappearance rate you're going to see the same numbers for the safety rate for the community and and that's something that I think all Valence period court should pat themselves on in the back you're going to get a drumroll moment here uh, <laughs> shortly from uh, from mr. Yoder with regard to some other numbers however just the fact that we're keeping this community safe is, is something that I think we shall be proud of
3: It's important also to point out, just as one's release is risk-informed now, Uh, so too are their supervision Mm -hmm. levels so we go beyond just the release component of pretrial and we take it into the pretrial office so that's the supervision monitoring unit we also look at their risk there so we spend we spend more time and resources towards high-risk people who are released as opposed to the low-risk people who are released historically again we 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 handled everyone who reported for supervision the same way nothing was tailored towards their risk That's been a fundamental change over the years, over the last few years now. And I think that adds to what I see as impressive appearance rates and safety rates. Yeah,
2: but with regard to that safety rate, the folks released OR, they're not offending at a rate of 86%. The folks that are released pursuant to bond are not offending at a rate of 77%. So once again, the tools and everything are are pointing us in the right direction. We're releasing people into the community that pose less of a risk to this community.
0: And it might be the understatement of the decade, but when we're talking about the results so far, our community has been engaged in a interesting conversation of late about the future of the Allen County Jail and the jail population. How are the provisions of Criminal Rule Twenty Six impacting jail populations and potentially even saving the community money?
2: Yeah, can, can you is put this the drum roll moment? Mm-hmm. I think it should be.
0: If I can find a drum roll, we'll insert it right here.
3: So I'll start by saying all, all data that we collect is uh, on, on disposed cases. There there are always a number of current pretrial clients under supervision. Uh, so insofar as disposed cases, whom we've did pre-initial hearing assessments on, 2,695 of those Folks were released on their own recognizance. Mm -hmm. That number of individuals pre 2016 would have all had a bond set based purely on the charge. Uh, We now know that if someone has a a bond set, they may secure their release by paying the bond to bail out, but over time, we've learned that about 11 days have passed on average before that person secures their release. If you take that number, those people are. They've all been released now on day one. That's 2,600 people, almost 2,700 people. It's $55 a day now to house someone in the Anna County Jail. And one could look at that figure and, and say, we have, we've saved at a minimum almost 120,000 incarceration days. Well, avoided due to risk-informed release as opposed to exclusively charge-based release. That equates to $6.5 million dollars. That's at a bare minimum, I would argue. I'll take this to the next logical step, which is if 2,700 pretrial defendants had a bond set and never bailed out or never satisfied their bond and sat in jail the entire time before their case is disposed, you're looking at a cost savings of upwards of $17 million. Wow. Probably about 60 to 70% of those people who do have a bond, they do bond out. But again, not for 11 days. So it's, it's a wide margin. However, at the low end, $6.5 million is quite significant. At the high end, $17 million is extremely significant. So you're not just doing good work on behalf of the courts
0: and on behalf of people who, who might otherwise be stuck in the jail, but you're also doing some really good work for the
3: taxpayers. That's correct, John. I think the numbers speak for themselves.
1: And I think the other part of your question was in regards to uh, the jail and people in it. There's a little bit of a news story going around that our jails allegedly overcrowded. I've heard Uh, about And if you figure since this has started, there's been 120,000 incarceration days avoided. And we've been doing this about six years just using numbers. That's 20,000 days a year divided by 365 days. That's on average, and this is obviously statistics, Mm -hmm. take it for what you want, but 55 people a day extra would be in the county jail than what they are right now
0: well wow. you know I'd, I'd ask for more stats but since you've already thrown out 17 million dollars and 55 people a day that aren't in the jail let's just run with that you know back to jeff maybe for a second implementing the provisions of criminal rule 26 was no small task for you and your staff was it criminal division services at, at any one time is supervising thousands of defendants on pre-trial release
3: no, it wasn't a small task at all. It took some buy-in, to say the, to, least, <laughs> to say the least. As for CDS staff, we have, we have tenured staff. They've been around for a long time. It took buy-in for me as well. That's never an easy task, but when, over time, the, the data shows the effectiveness, so the outcomes are positive, right? Even the most tenured staff bought into it. It also uh, allows us a chance to really focus in on those higher-risk people. We have high-risk people under supervision. Why Why would we spend most of our time on a low-risk person who may have never been in the system before or the same amount of time with versus a high-risk person? So we've been able to do that. That's something staff has been wanting to do for a long time, and we've tried our best to do it anything's hard to implement short of having the data in front of you to be comfortable with implementing that change. With this data, we, w- we were able to facilitate that change, and staff has been great over the last five, six years with, with allowing this to happen. The other thing I want to point on that Judge that mentioned earlier, Baby steps. We started out the game yep. taking baby steps. Okay, I'm going to go so far to say, had we not did that, I don't think we'd be sitting here doing a podcast today. Yeah, it was a slow process, but I'm so f- glad that we did it that way. At every interval, the data continued to look good, and it was working. So here we are today. It was the long process. I mean, these guys know how fun the map, pre-trial mapping process was, right? <laughs> we looked at every square inch of the criminal justice system, in our case, the pre-trial system. That gave us an idea of the population we're looking at and where can we change and improve. So that task was, yes, very difficult. I'm, I'm very proud of what we yep.
1: did. I mean, to think back all those years ago when this started and we're trying to figure out how do we solve this riddle, uh, what we've done to pat ourselves on the back again, it was simply amazing to figure out and have it work so well with the data to prove it with thousands and thousands of people that have gone through the process and the success rate we have. There was a summit in Indianapolis in October of 2019, right before the plague hit, and it was every county was supposed to send their team. And it was basically a get-together and presentations and seminar style of how do you do this and how do you do that to try and inform a lot of the other counties, this is how we're doing it, how are you doing it. Obviously, we were one of the pilots, so we were one of the first doing it, but I'll go so far as to say is we were the first one that was really up and running Mm -hmm. and actually doing it. And before that summit occurred back in October of 19, several of us got phone calls from a lot of other counties. You know, tell us how you're doing it. Can you send us your paperwork? Tell us a story. Da-da-da. And then we go to the summit down in Indy at the conference center, and people are making presentations as far as how you do this. And they're using our information and our data, but
0: they're the ones presenting it. So. Did they at least change the names on the PowerPoint slides?
1: I don't think so. I think I was sitting in the gallery one time while they were making a presentation as far as what I did and how I came up with it, and they were giving themselves credit. But that's okay.
0: Yeah, but I think it's also worth mentioning that when the supreme court started to explore this they identify who's good at piloting new ideas and one of them that they brought this to was allen county to to start this from scratch i mean that seems like a compliment in itself
3: We recently went through uh, a certification with Indiana Office of Court Services for pretrial services. And part of that process, they were here for two days on a site visit, was to sit through what we call CR 26 initial hearings, risk-informed hearings. They sat through that and the comments that they had was astounding. We haven't seen any other county operate like this. Mm -hmm. You guys are a well-oiled machine. There are counties in Indiana who frankly don't regularly have a defense attorney there a public defender there. They wondered
2: are, out you, loud if it was staged. You guys are doing it right. <laughs> right, right.
3: They thought this was all theater that day. So you know I think it's worth mentioning kudos to the Allen County prosecutor's office for providing that asset, which is making sure there's a deputy prosecutor attorney at every one of those hearings. Um, We do initial hearings every day of the week. You can't say that for every county in the state of Indiana. Initial hearings aren't always done every day of the week. And also kudos to the public defender's office, Bill Labredo and others, because they too dedicate a public defender every day of the week. So you have that purposeful, what I consider a meaningful initial hearing experience.
0: Yeah, you know, we've talked a lot about the business side of implementing Criminal Rule 26 like lower jail populations, but there's more to it than that. And I think Judge Zent touched on this earlier in the program, but there's an upside not just for the courts and for the defendant, but for the community as well. A low-risk defendant who's not sitting in jail may still be able to hold a job, take care of themselves, take care of their family. Whoever feels good about that, talk about it.
2: I think one thing you you said right there is whoever holds a job that is important when it comes into these hearings because that's one of the pieces of information you get on the iras is are they employed is a full-time is a part-time and there's a lot of considerations that go into a job uh, such as if they're receiving disability or something of that nature if they're a stay-at-home mom we consider that as well but Mm -hmm. it is important for us to determine if they have a job if they have these responsibilities because frankly if you don't have these responsibilities it's very impactful well why do you need to be out if you're if you're not looking after your children, if you don't have a job to provide for your children and mm-hmm. things like that. So we are cognizant that any type of incarceration has an impact beyond just that person. It, it can be the family, it can be friends if they have responsibilities for them. So that this information is all taken in and evaluated. And again, that's why it's called evidence-based decision making. As Judge Zent said earlier, this program has helped make people less of a number. Everybody has their own circumstances. We're taking that into account, whether it's their family, whether it's their job, or addiction goes into it. This program has helped us develop a different type of looking at these defendants, not as an offense, but more of a person.
0: Well, this has been really interesting. So let's, let's wrap up with a question to all three of you. In summary, how do you feel that Criminal Rule 26 has impacted the Allen County courts and the citizens that we all serve the most?
3: I guess I'll
1: start with yeah. saying it's it's kind of an echo of some of the things that we've already talked about. Being able to let people keep their families, keep their job, they're innocent until proven guilty. But with the success rate, with the formula we came up with, with how this process works, to know that this community is going to be safe, to know that the people are going to come back to court and saving taxpayers millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm very proud of the process that we came up with and the Jeff's people, how hard they work. And with the uh, judicial officers are making these decisions, it's being done the right way, keeping the community safe and saving money.
0: Magistrate Custer.
2: It provides a quality and treatment to each defendant. As I said earlier, they're not just a number, they're not just a offense. Every aspect of their life that we can take into account, we do.
3: Jeff, final thoughts? Just a couple of brief thoughts. I, I just wanted to point out uh, the research shows that for every day an assessed low risk pretrial defendant bends in custody, their likelihood of reoffending goes up once they do really? secure their release. Yeah, and, and, and for every day a high-risk person sits in jail, that likelihood of reoffending when they secure their release remains stagnant. So that's pretty impactful, and it goes to why we're doing this. Uh, it provides us with a mechanism by which to release lower-risk people without making them find the means to do so. So you don't have the candy bar thief who can't pay yeah. $75 or $250 to get out of jail, sits there for months on it. This CR26, this criminal rule, provided the mechanism for us to apply risk-informed release to avoid that scenario.
0: As we have done more than once on our podcast, this is really important information for the community to know that you all are doing really impactful, innovative work to make the criminal justice system serve at its best and highest use. Judge David Zant, Magistrate Jason Custer, and Jeff Yoder, thank you all for being on In Session today. More importantly, though, thanks for all the groundbreaking work you guys are doing to make sure the courts are serving our community in truly innovative ways. Of course. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. This has been In Session, an inside look at the Allen County, Indiana courts. You can find out more on this topic and others at allensuperiorcourt.us. Thanks for listening. The next episode's coming right up.